Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 5th, 2015, the HDR22 at ClintonEmail.com edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. In the midst of a snowstorm, and the snowstorm has caused chaos throughout the East Coast, and of course it has caused chaos even within our small Gab Fest universe, we have Emily Bazelon who joins us manfully, womanfully, <laughs> pridefully from a phone in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Not Hello, from studio. Yes. I am too nervous to go drive right now because there's really like a lot of snow outside my window. It's very beautiful, and yet I am so tired of it. You know, driving around here has just turned into a game of chicken because many two-way streets are actually only wide enough to be one-way streets because there are these mountains of rock formation ice piled up along the sides, and it is just so tedious and dangerous also. So that was Emily. The third voice you'll hear on this podcast is none. We don't have John today. John, scheduling, snow, snow, scheduling. And so it's going to be a special two-person show. John is in Iowa and, and everything went uh, topsy-turvy. So, and if you really love him, you'll just stop listening right now, right? No, no, they should listen so they can realize just they can how, much, the, how much they love, really only love the show because John is on it. On this week's GapFest, we will talk about uh, Bibi Netanyahu's big speech to Congress. Did it work? Then the Hillary Clinton email fiasco. Is it a big deal? And then Emily will King versus Burwell us on the Obamacare case at the Supreme Court. She'll tell us all the inside dope about that case and where, where it looks to be heading. We'll have cocktail chatter. I guess we really have to do great cocktail chatters, Emily. Yeah. There'll be no, no John cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, another Bazelon special will talk about the Alabama Supreme Court's bizarre decision to stop gay marriage in that state. First, before we get to the show, uh, just one more announcement about our live show. It's going to be at the Bell House in Brooklyn on April 8th. If you go to slate.com slash NYC, you can buy tickets. There are only a few left. I would urge you to go and get your tickets soon because the show is almost sold out. It's going to be a great show. We haven't done a live show in a while. I think we'll be raring, raring to go. The Bell House is a wonderful venue. We had a great time when we were there last time. It's a really perfect space for a live show. So go to slate.com slash GabFestNYC. Pick up some of those last few remaining tickets to our live show on April 8th. And there's a discount for Slate Plus members, 30% off. So all the more reason to be a Slate Plus member. This deal has two major concessions. One, leaving Iran with a vast nuclear program. And two, 
lifting the restrictions on that program in about a decade. That's why this deal is so bad. It doesn't block Iran's path to the bomb. It paves Iran's path to the bomb. That was Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu delivering his big speech to Congress this week. The Israeli leader argued that the United States must reject a deal with Iran because it won't do enough to rein in its nuclear capacity. It won't stop it from from fomenting terrorist mischief-making throughout the region. He was greeted with huzzahs, with standing ovations, with cheers by the audience, mostly Republicans. Uh, Democrats also cheered some, but less, and some of them boycotted too. Netanyahu was playing both to a U.S. audience and also to Israeli voters who face the prospect of reelecting him in a couple of weeks. President Obama called the speech a whole lot of nothing, saying that Netanyahu offered no viable alternative path for negotiation. So, Emily, do you think that this speech was a success for Netanyahu on the two axes in which he was seeking success? So electoral advantage at home and then pushing the United States towards a, a more hardline position on negotiations here. Well, he got a bump in the polls at home. So as long as that lasts, yes. And I continue to think that is his primary agenda. In terms of changing things here in negotiations with Iran, I mean, I think he's causing problems for President Obama and giving Republicans this very clear not just symbol, but, you know, substantive concern to rally around, invoking the Jewish homeland, the Jewish people. I mean, these were, this is really like the lacrimose version of Israeli and Jewish identity, you know, this idea that anti-Semitism and fear always governs, or at least is like a huge consideration for Jews. Right. Did you did you hear the bit where he quoted, so, so he gave a speech the night before Purim, the Jewish holiday yeah. Purim, and he quoted, he talked about how 2,500 years ago, a Persian potentate Haman had sought the destruction of the Jews, and a, a brave Jewish woman had stood up to stop it. And now, 2,500 years later, another Persian potentate in uh, Tehran was seeking the destruction of the Jews, and it was our, you know, we had our duty to stand up and fight back. And maybe Netanyahu thinks that he is Queen Esther. Yeah. So how do you feel about this invoking of the past of Jewish persecution? I mean, obviously, it has it's not like you can never completely dismiss it. And yet I just, um, I feel frustrated that this is the vision that Netanyahu presents of Jews to the world. I felt this way too when he called on the Jews in Denmark to come home, meaning to come to Israel after there were a few tragic murders of Jews in Copenhagen. Okay, this is a real problem, but Denmark has a tradition of protecting Jews. And I, I just don't, I just don't like this idea, but I wonder what you think about it, perhaps more articulately than me. No, I totally share your queasiness with this idea that Jews are only safe in Israel. And actually, then Jews are not safe in Israel because Israel's survival is threatened. But the Jews, the, the proper homeland for Jews is Israel, which I don't believe at all as an American Jew and as an American Jew who's married to an Israeli who's who moved from Israel to the United States. I certainly don't believe it. It's a dangerous message to say that the Jewish identity is defined by geography, or even that it has to be, you know, entirely defined by Jewishness, that, that you can have nation state. I mean, my, I, I put myself an American far before I put myself as a Jew in the world. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to be. There's this way in which Netanyahu is trying to cast the entire situation of Israel and Iran as being outside the normal world of 
politics and political interests of of nation states, that he casts the Iranian leaders as essentially non-rational actors with a messianic vision to install an Islamic theocracy throughout the world, and that Israel is a special state which for which the normal rules of statecraft don't apply. And I just don't think that's true. I think is if, if the thing that seems to me most true about Iran is that Iran appears to me to be an entirely rational actor. It's like it's if you look at its behavior over the past you know, 10 or 15 years, it is very much acting in its own rational self-interest most of the time. It is trying to become a regional power. It is trying to get friendly governments next to it. It is trying to hedge against a very strong Sunni influence to its south and east and west, I mean, in all directions. Lately, it's been fighting ISIS. Helpful. Yeah, and it because, you know, out of not, I don't think it's fighting ISIS because it wants to help the United States or anything, because it perceives that this, that ISIS is an extremely destabilizing, dangerous thing to have on its borders. Netanyahu's portrayal of Iran is that it's, we can't allow them any nuclear enrichment or any nuclear program, essentially because they are not rational actors and they cannot be trusted. It's as though we're giving a nuclear weapon to ISIS or nuclear capability to ISIS. And I would say that is just like a, that's a fundamental, that's a sleight of hand that isn't true. It's that, that Iran has theocratic leaders. It has a Shia theocratic democratic government, just as Saudi Arabia has a Sunni, you know, monarchic theocratic government. But it's acting most of the time out of state interest. And it's not to say it doesn't cause mischief in the world. It's not to say that it's our great friend. But it's basically a nation state that acts in its interest, which is the economic prosperity of its people, which is, you know, power within its region, which is global influence. And we should treat it that way. And I feel like that's what the, these negotiations are doing. And that's what Netanyahu is, is really trying. Netanyahu is saying that Iran, it's either like ISIS or it's like North Korea, where it is really is like a, a weasel, a kind of thing that cannot be trusted at all. I just don't think the evidence bears that out. Point of your analysis, it's perfectly fine for Iran to develop as many centrifuges as it wants and have a nuclear weapon because they will just be compelled by the same deterrence effect as everyone else? Well, ultimately, I think that's probably okay. Yeah. Iran is not a suicidal state. It knows that any attack on Israel, a nuclear attack on Israel, is suicide. Israel has the capacity to destroy Iran as much as Iran has the capacity to destroy Israel. So, so in some sense, I don't really care that much if Iran gets a nuclear weapon. But for all those people who do care and who are probably much more sophisticated analysts, analysts of global geopolitics than I am, the end point is you bring Iran to the community of nations and you, you put constraints on them that are measurable constraints where there are clear punishments and guides and rewards. And those punishments are if you, if you don't allow us to inspect you, if you violate the protocols we're, cre- we're making about enrichment, then you will be punished with these terrible sanctions. But if you, you know, agree to these and, and, and limit your behavior towards things that we, we believe to be relatively harmless or, or not so dangerous in terms of levels of enrichment, the use of the fuel, then you're able to participate in the community of nations as a, as a proud state should. And that seems perfectly reasonable to me. And your more hopeful narrative, I think also, or at least mine, would then posit that the fundamentalist regime in Iran in Iran would eventually give way to a more moderate one. And then you really have a happy story in which the fact that we were willing to take this risk and negotiate and treat Iran like one of the family of nations then ends with a better government. You know, I think 
There are a lot of people who are skeptical that Iran obviously is going to move in that direction, can be trusted. It is different to think about these ideas when you live right next door to Iran, as Netanyahu at least points out. But it is important Israel to say that- doesn't live right next door to Iran. Like, that's a fallacy. Israel <laughs> lives near Iran. But okay. Israel is not yeah. actually... If you think about what Iran's real geopolitical interests are, the destruction of Israel probably ranks like down around number nine or ten. There's so many other things that come before it. It, it, it doesn't serve them. Iran is a state that encompasses a, a pretty well-defined region of Persian speakers who are you know, mostly Shiite Muslims. And that, you know, that's what their major interest is. And then having been protected, what purpose does it serve them to go destroy Israel? There isn't really any purpose. It's not in its interest. It's, you know, it is in its rhetorical interest. They're not the Palestinians who, have, who are fighting for the same land with the Jewish state of Israel. They're totally separate. Right. So then where does this leave us domestically? I mean, President Obama, I think, is making some kind of calculation like yours, maybe a little less rosy viewed, but he certainly wants to make some kind of deal, and he sees delaying Iran's nuclear capabilities as a significant benefit. Netanyahu, I think Obama's right. He doesn't have another idea. He is saying a bad deal is worse than no deal at all. It's a little hard to tell exactly what he thinks we should do, except be more belligerent. And it's also true, perhaps, that his saber-rattling in the past has led us to be more aggressive, and maybe that has kept Iran at bay longer. But, you know, I mean, domestically for us, it just seems like this is a big opportunity. And if it goes by, then all the possibilities you just laid out recede before us, right? right? Well, the other thing I don't get, and I, and I tried to do a little reading on this, I didn't quite master it last night, was that even if President Obama strikes a deal with Iran, there are these congressionally imposed sanctions, which is, as I, my brief understanding was that President Obama could sort of suspend them in a, in a temporary, I'm going outside the law way. Right, but he can't reverse he them. He can't reverse them. And I, presumably, if a, well, unless this is going well, if a, a next a Republican president almost certainly would have a lot of pressure to undo whatever suspension he's doing. And so that Congress's power to influence the president and what the president decides is is profound. So his ability to strike this deal is limited. Although I guess all these other countries would lift, if every country except the United States lifts sanctions, that would be very helpful for Iran. Right. I mean, I think the president tries to create some facts on the ground. But what the main domestic implication of Netanyahu showing up here and addressing the House the way he did is that it just makes the idea that House or Senate Republicans are going to go along with lifting sanctions seem more remote. I mean, also the theatrics of it. I mean, I usually don't care about this stuff, but I did find it really odd to have a foreign leader come in the sort of guise of the State of the Union in this incredibly awkward way that had become bitter and partisan. There was something just like off-putting about it, and then I couldn't decide if, you know, if I didn't like the president? Would I have felt the snub in the same way? Was it really institutional considerations that were disturbing me? Or was it more just a sense that Netanyahu just really doesn't like or trust President Obama? And he has made that evident in a way that's just not helpful to Obama. Right. I didn't, I guess I was less bothered by the sort of theatrics of it. I mean, I think it was canny of Netanyahu for his domestic political reasons to arrange it. But I didn't, I didn't feel like, oh, the, the theatrics of this are terrible or this world leader is, is insulting the United States by doing what he's doing. He, ha- he had a legitimate invitation from the, the Congress, and he gave a very forceful presentation of his views, but he didn't give a forceful presentation of his views that was 
that felt like out of whack. I feel like it's okay to have, you know, if Congress thinks it wants to hear from this leader and to get a different perspective on an important geopolitical issue, then more power to Congress. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. The GAFS this week is sponsored by Stamps.com. You know the feeling that you get when you can get things done with just the click of your mouth? And it can't get more convenient than that. Now you can even get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk, thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. Talk about convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer or printer. Then just hand your mail to the mail carrier and drop it in a mailbox and you'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for a special offer, no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer where you'll get a free digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. The Hillary Clinton email fiasco. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be a... Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So it turns out that while Secretary of State Hillary Clinton exclusively used a private email account for all her correspondence, ran the email off a private server out of her house, Clinton's and her defenders seem to be claiming something like that the rules about email usage for federal employees were ambiguous, that she's preserved the records that she's handed over, now handing over, has handed over all the emails relating to work and that she didn't do anything like share classified information on her email and that also everyone did this, that that if you look at the behavior of other secretaries of state, of other secretaries of other things, of other public officials, that they're using private email all the time. But really, come on. I mean, wow. House Republicans are already jumping on this, already subpoenaing her emails for Benghazi news. So, Emily, this is clearly embarrassing and looks bad. Is it a scandal? Huh. Well, I feel a lot of, like, umbrage and outrage about this. I guess I don't think it's a scandal because it seems like she didn't actually break the law. To parse this a little bit, there is currently a law and regulation in place that would make this clearly out of bounds. But when she was doing this, less so. What I think is much blurrier is this notion of record keeping, because even though at the time um, she had this private email account as Secretary of State, it might have been okay to have the email and even be doing government business on it. She was supposed to always make sure that this was part of the public record. Substantively speaking, what really bothers me about this is she gets to decide now which emails are relevant and that she's going to turn over, as opposed to having the whole cache of them in a government server in which other people presumably would get to make that call. And so for her to say, okay, well, here are the 50,000 emails related to Benghazi. Well, what if she left out something that the rest of us would think was relevant or embarrassing or really bad? How are we ever supposed to know? That seems like the whole point of having an email address like this. And again, like that's just an end run around how public officials are supposed to do public business. Yeah, it is shocking. I mean, we agree. And if John were here with us, he would make a strong point that we want our public officials to have a private life. We want them to have places that they can engage in their private conversations, where they can tell jokes to their friends, where they can make assignations with their mistresses. And we want that to be a protected private space. But when public officials like intentionally mingle public and private, 
they make they make it hard for us to justify that. And you you know right. it's it's going to be very hard, I think, for Clinton to avoid turning over every one of those emails that she sent out of this account. And and, and she should and turn she should. over every one of those emails. At, at least some neutral arbiter should get to review whether they're relevant to the congressional inquiry or not. I mean, the worst part about this for her is it like churns back up Benghazi. I mean, who needed to like give the people who seemed kind of nutty who were looking into Benghazi an excuse to make it seem like there's some real scandal going on here? Well, now she's given them that excuse, and she's also played into everyone's worst image of the Clintons, that they're secretive, and also that they shoot themselves in the foot. Like, this just seems so obtuse now. What? How could they have possibly thought this was going to wash? Right. What do you think they were trying to do? Why do you think they did this to begin with? Because it was a very calculated plan. She set up the account days before her confirmation hearing. You know, it's it's set to expire in 2017. Right, exactly. When she when she becomes president, she becomes as president, take office as president. You know, it seems to me that the charitable reading of this would be that she wanted to maintain her privacy about non-government affairs. She was sending emails about the Clinton Foundation, about her private life. She was trying to have some kind of division and wall and erect some sort of safe space around herself. And I guess to play this out a little more, you know, in past eras when presidents were sending letters rather than emails, there just wasn't the same volume of correspondence and communication available. And so I suppose you could argue that the medium itself gives license to some greater degree of maintaining privacy. The problem with that whole argument is it would be one thing if she'd been using ClintonEmail.com for her non-government business and, you know, SecretaryOfState.gov for the government. But she just wasn't doing that. And that just seems like where this all breaks down. Right. And they're, they're trying to make the argument. Some of the Clinton defenders are trying to make the argument, well, you know, Jeb Bush has used a private account or this or that person uses a private account or members of the House use a private account. And I just don't, I guess I just don't think it flies. I mean, if you're, if you, if Jeb Bush is using a private account, I don't know what the laws of Florida are, but he's not a national official. Like this is, she's a national official. She's this, you know, second or third most powerful person in the entire U.S. government. The citizens of the United States have an absolute right to know the official business that she is conducting on email. Like they have an absolute, there's an, it is our, those are our emails. They are not her emails. They are ours. She works right. for I mean, us. The other way of thinking about this is that if Bush was doing this or Chuck Hagel, that was also wrong. And that was why now we have this clear set of regulations in place, which public officials should abide by. But for her to say that she was obeying the spirit as well as the letter of the law, that just seems like utter hogwash. And I'm kind of embarrassed for her that one of her folks was saying that. Right. Also, the security questions, I mean, right. like, you know, everything is getting stolen. I'm sure the Chinese would have hacked a State Department email account, too. But a private email server run on your own domain out of your house, if that isn't an invitation for someone to come in and just, just swipe everything, I don't know what is. I, mean, I, know, I could probably it's steal amazing that. it didn't get swiped. Yeah, yeah, probably did. <laughs> probably or probably retroactively is going to be, too. Right. So is there any defense of this? I mean, I suppose the thing that I am not looking forward to is the way this is going to now become, like, blown up and exaggerated out of all proportion, the way every Clinton sin is. You know, like, one imagines it will be the topic of Fox News for, like, the next two years, some discussion of this. And yet, on the other hand, it's sort of like it's, it's her own fault. So 
I you, don't know. Well, do you think it will have actual impact on the presidential campaign? I don't think that most voters would find this to be unforgivable. I mean, it's slightly technical. I also think people do have some understanding of privacy, but I think because it plays into this image of the Clintons, that it reminds me exactly what I don't like about them, which is that they seem really suspicious, a little paranoid, and as if they don't think the rules apply to them. I imagine that, like, is going to resonate with people. The timing of it is good for her. It's so super early. It's going to, you know, play out long before, obviously, like, anyone gets near a polling booth. But uh, what do you think? Well, I, at the beginning, I, th- I think you're absolutely right that the problem is that it plays into beliefs that pe- we already have about her, which is why all the Romney, whenever Romney said anything about money or, or there was any kind of sense of his wealth or elitism, it was a problem for him because it was confirming a bias that exists and it becomes part of the, the overarching story of the campaign. And so this will, insofar as the secretiveness and sense of privilege of the Clintons is a theme in the campaign, this will be exhibit A or maybe exhibit C of it, depending on what comes out, but that probably the specifics will blow over by the time the campaign really gets underway. I just repeated exactly what you said and then as though (laughs) I was saying something new. What happens next? Like, what if it turns out she did withhold some relevant Benghazi oh. email, or there's some weird gap wow. in the email record that she's she won't fill be, in? I mean, that would hers. really get her detractors going, oh, right? Yeah. Oh, that would be disaster. It's so funny. The, the congressman who seems to be leading this is this guy, Trey Gowdy, who's a South Carolina Tea Partier. He's, he was an old friend of mine. It's so odd. I met really? him. Wow, I that? met him, you know, 15 years ago, 14, 13 or Maybe 13 years ago, he was then a, a district attorney, an elected district attorney in South Carolina. And he, I had given a, I'd written a story about gambling in South Carolina that a lot of conservatives liked. And so I'd ended up giving a couple of speeches down in South Carolina. And I. Oh, yeah, had, I remember that piece. You won an award for that piece. Yeah, yeah, it was a great piece, if I do say so myself. And I just did. And so I met the, one of the guys who invited me to give a speech, was friends with Trey. And so Trey and I had lunch. And then. He ended up actually writing something for Slate about being a district attorney. It was really... That's awesome. And I loved him. I thought he was just such a good guy. He was funny. He was smart. He was really self-aware. He was obviously conservative, but he wasn't like a crazy conservative. He's become like this crazy conservative. Um, <laughs> he's, he's just... He's like such an attack dog, Tea party or kind of... Uh, I mean, I'm sure he's going to have a great career. He'll probably be a senator from South Carolina eventually or governor or something. He's he's really smart and and funny and charismatic, and I'm... But I was, I'm a little bit shocked to see how conservative he's become. The times drive us to these lengths, David. Yeah. I w- once tried to email him after he was elected to the House, and I don't, I think his, like, spokesman wrote me back something anodyne because I was hoping to just go <laughs> Keeping see you at bay. Yeah, probably. Trouble causer that you are. So last, last question on this, Emily. What do you think she needs to do to defuse this? What's their, obviously it can't. She can't uh, make it 100% go away tomorrow, but what is the, what's her best path to I guess she has it? To, I mean, this is a problem. The best thing to do would be to release every single email. I'm not sure how she would prove that she had done that, and I can't imagine she wants to do that, because who wants to release every single email you ever wrote? God, that would be so terrible to have to do right. that. Right. I mean, it, she's kind of in a box, because I imagine she did. I mean, one would imagine she doesn't put too many things on email she wouldn't want out in the world. But on the other hand, the idea that she has nothing like that also seems unrealistic. Right, right. I think they're right that they're going to have to find someone who who is uh, above suspicion, who has gravitas and is trusted by everybody to review every email. Because right. there, there's I mean, no way they can let the ones it. about... That's not fair. Yeah, and they can't let out the ones where she says, you know, 
the very personal stuff, which I won't even get into what could be in there. They can't let that stuff get out because that would be too embarrassing. So they have to find a way to show it. But someone has to look at all of them, too. Right. So maybe there is some, you know, you bring in some retired federal judge in the right. time-honored way of giving some sort of imprimatur to investigate. Right. right. So who is it? It's a, so it's a re- retired federal judge who was probably appointed by a Republican. Yeah, but is not necessarily like fire-breathing. Right. Or prosecutor... U.S. I think attorney. just saying the word special prosecutor around the Clintons would will, <laughs> will make them run from this idea. No, no, but like it's guy who was a who was a who former U.S. attorney who is who is now in private practice as a criminal defense lawyer, but who was appointed by Republican president, a great investigator of public corruption, and that person can come in and look at it all. Yeah, I guess so. What a fun job! I could bring in you. I, you'd be good. <laughs> I don't think any journalists are getting near that email trove. The GapFest is also sponsored this week by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO. It's filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. It exposes long-buried information discovered during a seven-year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. It was made with the cooperation of Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence and remains a free man today. The jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind Capturing the Freedmans. Durst came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, a fictional account of Durst's life starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard the argument in the biggest case of the year, well, at least one of the two biggest cases of the year, but probably the biggest case of the year, King versus Burwell, case about the legality of the subsidies offered to people who are getting their insurance through the federal exchanges in the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, just just saying that sentence made you tired, right? I feel like well, I was I, I started the, the sentence. I didn't know where I was going. One more time. I didn't I didn't know where I was going with it when I started no, it. And I was like, bad. how am I going to get through the sentence? How am I going to get through it? <laughs> I have a lot of lot of lot of polls to hit here. So, Emily, we talked a lot about this case. We previewed the arguments last week. The arguments have now taken place, and so the the big questions are. Does it look like the justices are receptive to the conservative argument that the that the legislative language is is so poor and so confusing or so maybe so clear that in fact these subsidies are not intended to go to people under the federal exchanges and thus that the the entire sort of superstructure of Obamacare is in danger or did it appear that they were skeptical of that conservative claim? Okay, so let's preface this by saying that oral argument is mostly a matter of performance and testing out ideas and rarely, in fact, signals exactly where the case is coming out. Let's remember that when we had our last oral argument about Obamacare and the big constitutional challenge to it in 2011 and 2012, it looked like a total disaster for the administration after the argument, and then Obamacare was upheld. All of that said, what was interesting about Wednesday's argument was Justice Kennedy. That was pretty much the only thing that was interesting because the court's liberals seemed entirely skeptical of this challenge in a kind of expected way. They said, look, you read this law as a whole, it's completely clear that Congress intended to make these subsidies available to everyone in every state, no matter what kind of health care exchange that state chose, because every, otherwise the whole thing just falls apart in this nonsensical way. 
And on the other side, Justices Scalia and Alito were zeroing in on the literal reading of this law and seemed pretty sanguine about the idea of torching these health care exchanges. Scalia at one point said, well, we don't really think Congress is just going to sit around and do nothing, to which there was actually laughter in the courtroom after Donald Verrilli, the Solicitor General, said, this Congress? I was actually thinking maybe that was a good like reality check moment for Justice Scalia. And then we can assume that Thomas is with Scalia and Alito, so that would mean that Kennedy in the center of the court could be in play, and Chief Justice Roberts, who of course provided the fifth sort of miraculous vote to save Obamacare last time around. Roberts didn't really say anything, so we have to consider him to be a continuing question mark. Kennedy <laughs> raised a point that neither side really wanted to touch on in the briefs because it's not exactly clear how it plays out. So Kennedy said, wait, perhaps you'll prevail on the plain words of the statute, but there's a serious constitutional problem if we adopt your argument. He said that to the challengers. And what he meant was, if the challengers are right, then Congress buried this bomb in the text of the law that made the states totally screwed if they didn't adopt a state-run exchange. In other words, there was this huge penalty on the states for not following a directive from Congress, which most of the states say they didn't realize was there. And so Kennedy is saying, well, that really causes like a deep federalism problem for Congress to be enacting that kind of penalty against the states without giving clear warning. And maybe that means this law is unconstitutional. So where do you go from there? Like, if the law is unconstitutional because that's, in fact, what it says, then that would be bad for the government. That would mean, if you take it to its logical conclusion, that you have to strike down the law. And I imagine that's why the government didn't actually make this argument. The other possibility, though, which the Solicitor General tried to argue back to Kennedy, is that if you read the law in this way that creates this big constitutional problem, then the court should avoid doing that. This is this legal doctrine called the doctrine of constitutional avoidance, where if you have a choice as a court about how to read a law, and one of the choices leads you into, like, constitutional minefield, you pick the other choice. Kennedy didn't seem convinced by that when Donald Verrilli raised it on Wednesday, though. And so that leaves this, like, interesting, I mean, this is just going to be the suspense. Like, does Kennedy mean this about this constitutional dilemma in the middle of this law? And if he does does mean it and is really focused on it, and if he's the fifth vote, because who knows what Roberts is doing, then whose side does he end up on? Which way does he go with this? Does that make any sense? Yes, it makes huge sense. But is that, does that give you a 4-3-2, or does it give you a 5-4 to four I mean, we defeat? don't know, like, because we don't know where Roberts is. But if you, if you assume that Roberts is with Kennedy on some argument that the statute is unconstitutional because it has this coercion of the states— does that mean that there there is a, a single conclusion in which Scalia is also attached to that? Because Scalia's view is not that. Scalia has a no, different view. Yeah, I think Scalia, Alito, and Thomas write an opinion that says, plain words of the statute, this Congress meant what it said and said what it meant. Goodbye to this these health care exchanges. Congress, if you want to fix it, you go ahead. Alito brought up the idea and argument of giving 
people through 2015 to hang on to their subsidies as a way of giving the state and federal government some time to fix this problem. It's sort of hilarious to me, by the way, that the conservatives are so sure that, you know, the government, which they're normally so skeptical of, is going to, like, hop to it and solve this. But that, I, I, I mean, that seemed to be where they were going in oral argument. No, but I guess what I'm saying is they, they would have three to say that. Right. This is all in the land of area hypothetical. The there were three saying that. And then you have Kennedy and, let's presume, Robert saying, well, we don't believe that, but instead we believe the whole law is unconstitutional. Well, then it goes, because you can have two different rationales, or indeed five different rationales for striking down a law. And if everyone agrees on striking down the law, the law still Wait, gets Wait, but, but, but Alito and Scalia wouldn't be saying the law was unconstitutional. They'd just be saying this, this particular aspect of the law was illegal. Those right. Are, so it would depend on where they all ended up. But they could certainly come to different reasons about why this part of the law is illegal and needs to be struck down. And if one was on a constitutional ground and the other was statutory interpretation, as long as they all sign off on the outcome, that's okay. Right. Right. So and obviously the liberal justices were where they were. They were kind of agog, I would yeah. say, and trying to sort of play out the, the like weird logic of this. But it didn't seem that they were attracting a fifth vote in doing that, unless Roberts was quietly agreeing with them. And do we have any basis for belief about what Roberts might be thinking? No, I don't. I mean, other than the sort of politics of like, really, you're going to take away subsidies for millions of people. That's such a dramatic, harsh thing for the court to do. And Roberts tends to care about the institutional legitimacy of the court. And if you were, if he was going to strike down Obamacare, wasn't that a smarter move, politically speaking, three years ago before it got going and people started relying on it. But, you know, he could have his whole own legal set of considerations that have nothing to do with politics that are driving him. Right, right. Can I say one more thing about the coercion argument that Kennedy's making, this idea that, like, the federal government can't inflict this penalty on the states, which is that this didn't used to be the way the court thought about federal and state power. There are lots of programs in the past where Congress has said to the states, if you want this money, you have to do X and Y. And yet, the last time around in Obamacare, remember, there were seven votes for giving the states the option to reject the Medicaid expansion that is in Obamacare. And the way Congress had set that up was to say, well, you can either take this money and expand Medicaid or you can lose all your Medicaid funding. It seemed going into argument that that wasn't a terribly controversial way for Congress to do business, but then the court soundly rejected it. And so you can see the parallel here. If the court reads the law as saying that Congress is saying to the states, you either have to set up state exchanges or everyone who lives in your states is not eligible for a subsidy. It's the same kind of impermissible coercion that we had three years ago. And so that would be Kennedy would get to be making law in that direction in a way that he might really like because he likes the idea of protecting state power and mm-hmm. state prerogatives. Oif. So did you come out of this argument leaning more towards one direction or the other, where you think they're going one, one way or the other? me, the other part of what surprised me was that I thought going in that the safest ground for upholding this law is what we talked about, I believe, last summer, Chevron deference. This idea that if you have an ambiguous statute, courts defer to the reading of the federal agency that's in charge of interpreting the statute. In this case, the IRS. The IRS said that every state, no matter what kind of exchange it has, could be eligible for subsidies for its people. 
there you go. You just say, like, we're going to respect the IRS ruling because this statute is unclear. That seemed like the safe out to me. But when presented with that option, Kennedy said something, an argument like, well, we can't just leave it up to the IRS when there are billions of dollars at stake. I have never heard of a principle that limits Chevron deference that based on the amount of money the agency is responsible for disbursing or at least, like, making a rule for the disbursement of. And yet all of a sudden it just seemed to be, like, gone as an option. On the other hand, you know, here we go again with Roberts. Like, maybe Roberts believes in that solution and he could make common ground with the liberals and uphold the law on that ground. Right. And does that mean that if there's a Republican president and a new head of the IRS in 2017, that then, then this vanishes? Exactly. And you know what? That's like why we have Chevron deference, because the idea is that the agencies are more tied to the political process. And so if people really don't like the rules they come up with, they can just be voted out of office. It's really hard to imagine, though, that would actually happen, because by 2017, these subsidies are going to be more entrenched and more popular. And that seems also like it's part of how the political process works. You know, I mean, it's, it does matter here that there are only seven states who are arguing in favor of getting rid of these subsidies. Right. So that is a lot of states with Republican governors who are either staying out of this fight or are actually on the side of, wait, 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 our people should get this money, too. Right. Oif. Oif. Oif, oif, To be oif. continued at the end of June, or perhaps the beginning of July, I suppose. Oh, my God. Uh, let's go to cocktail chatter. There's no John to give us some kind of grand historical chatter. I know. Chatter. I have to say, it's going to be sad today. I listened to the second episode of his Whistle Stop podcast that he and Voilo are doing. I haven't heard that one yet. Is oh, my great? God. It's just as good as the first one. It's about George Romney's visit to the poorest parts of America during his 1968 or his in 1967, just before his 1968 presidential campaign. Oh, that sounds it's great. so great. It is so great. This is like, I don't, I, I hope this, is this podcast doing as well as it deserves to? Volo's nodding. Yes. Good. What I would actually like is for me to be in the room with John while he tapes it and just be able to ask him questions because. I bet like, he would let you be in the room, although maybe he doesn't want you interrupting him for once. Oh, well then that wouldn't be so fun, would it? <laughs> so what's your chatter, Emily? My chatter is actually about a different podcast, and I guess radio show, called Invisibilia, which is this new show by Elise Spiegel, ooh, and someone else whose name I forget. Lulu Miller. What? Lulu Miller. Lulu Miller. It is about science. I mean, it's about the things that are invisible in the world, like invisible forces that influence us. It's a great combination of really interesting, meaty, scientific issues and discoveries, and then it's just recorded in this, like, very narrative, fun, personal discovery way, which is my favorite kind of podcast. Um, yeah, it's great. Elise is a, one of our closest friends, and she, um, it's the most popular podcast ever made. Really? It's More ahead of serial? serial. Yeah. That's amazing. It's amazing. They, they've just finished their first season of Invisibilia, so they've, they've done their, I think it was an initial run of six hour-long episodes. I think it's six. And then there's a break as they prepare their second season. But it is so is it phenomenal. also airing on NPR? Yeah, it's a radio show. It's on a lot of radio stations, but uh, I listen to it as a podcast, and it's Me great too. as a podcast. Elise is just she's she has really one of the great minds for storytelling of anyone I've ever met, and she's um, she's also they're just like a lot of fun in addition to being very deep in what they're doing. So it's, yes, it's, I completely agree. So listeners, if you're looking for a new podcast, you should try that one. My chatter is so. It is a. It's another. I'm not going to say the word because we're a family radio show. It's another effing snow day here in Washington. 
my children are again home from school because it's another effing snow day. And it's just maddening this winter. I don't need to tell anyone who lives on the East Coast. It's been a terrible, horrible last, you know, February and March here in, and I guess late January too. It's just been awful, beyond awful. But the local radio station here in Washington, WMU, did a, did a little segment the other day, which I loved, which was by a reporter named Kavitha Cardoza, whose name I loved also to say. Kavitha Cardoza did a story about do they have snow days in other countries that don't have snow? Like what's the equivalent of a snow day if you're in Colombia or in, in Cameroon? Brazil. Yeah, and it's great. And so so she got some great examples. So in the Philippines, they're typhoon days. So they would get right. off for the like which doesn't they don't sound so fun because you can't actually go outside because you look at there's this quote from someone saying, I look outside and see benches flying, you know, and roofs <laughs> getting not blown off. Sledding. Yeah. So then Saudi Arabia, what do they have? I don't know. Desert wind days? Sandstorms. Stand, oh, right. Sandstorm days. And they actually have snow plows that remove the sand. Oh. Then there's an Ecuador example. Any guesses for that? Um, rainforest days? Volcano. Volcano. <laughs> that must not happen like seven yeah. or eight times yeah. in the that's, one no, that, season. No, that, that's, not, I don't think that was, that's probably not a great example. But it was like a day that their volcano erupted and the city was covered with ash, which sounds actually terrifying. Yeah, that's not so great. Um, I hope that doesn't, yeah. And then India. This one's easy. India, uh, malaria? No. No. That's probably totally, completely has nothing to do with India. There probably is no malaria. Monsoon. Monsoon. Right. Okay. Sorry. Monsoon days. At least I got the M right. Um, so that was, I really liked that. I was like, okay, so, you know, it's not all, it's not all wine and roses elsewhere. Our intern is Tarek Barrett. He's not here because he's snowed out. Our producer is Mike Wola, who is here. Nicely done, Mike. Well done. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Panoply. I like that word. It trips off the tongue. It is a great word. It's a great name. It's a fantastic name. Who came up with it? I don't know. Who came up with it? Julia. Yay, (laughs) Julia. Yeah. Who would are we surprised? Man, uh, that's that. I definitely, if I were the editor, I wouldn't have come up with that. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slate gabfest. And our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Buy tickets for our New York live show at slate.com slash gabfest NYC. Just a few more left for those. And what else do I have to say? Oh, yeah, you can subscribe to the gabfest on iTunes. You probably do that already, but. If you don't, go ahead and do that. Search for Slate Political Gap Fest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and for the ghost of John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week, although I think Emily is going to be, Emily's about to go on a I big trip. I will not trip. be here, sadly, next week, but, but we, someone will be here. We, have will special, not be, yeah, we will got, not continue we have, the two-person Gap Fest forever. We have a special guest. We've already arranged our special guest. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.